Good morning. That's the second time I've heard that song, and I'm sure I've heard it other times, but just going on and on about all the tremendous descriptions of the God that we come here to worship, his gloriousness, his majesty, the fact that he reigns over us, you know, just on and on and on, and, you know, not taking an ounce away from that, but this same God that possesses all these qualities, you know, what he considers his greatest task that he wants to do. He wants to be intimately involved with each one of us here this morning. He wants to be your God, your Savior, your friend. He wants to be intimately connected with you. He wants to, it's a little crowded today at the first service, a little bit more empty seats where I, I could make this illustration. But he wants to sit right down next to you through this service and for the rest of your life, if you allow him, and minister to you, provide you with wisdom, comfort, support, and help. And all that we need to do is call on him. So we're going to do that here for a few minutes, and then we'll get into our message. Let me pray for us. Father God, you, you truly are glorious and majestic. You reign over all the universe. The only area that you don't reign over unless we allow you to is, is our own personal lives. Father, may we be men and women, boys and girls, who, who are desirous to allow you into our individual personal lives to be our comforter, our source of strength and wisdom and power, a source of direction and comfort. Father, I just praise you for that. And Father, I just pray that you'll be with us this morning as we open up your word and share your word that, um, you know, anything I have to say is feeble and weak compared to what you are able to say into each one of our hearts if we would only open ourselves up to receive a very special message from you. Father, I pray for that for each one of us here today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, obviously, Brad, Brad, Pastor Brad isn't here. I'm here. He, uh, last week, and I didn't even know this, but last week he was deathly sick and, uh, and preached uh, what I consider one of his better sermons. And uh, he kept thinking, well, tomorrow I'll get better. Tomorrow I'll get better. Tomorrow I'll get better. Well, tomorrow still hasn't come. So, so we need to pray for him, and I'm sorry that we should have done that. So, but... Um, um, I'm here. I'm, my name's Tom Downing, and, and uh, I'm here to bring uh, a message, hopefully, from the Lord for each one of us here. It, a month or so ago, I was given the privilege to share God's Word with you, and during the message, I left you with a little bit of a teaser that if I was invited back, I would uh, expand on that. And, and the message I gave um, a month or so ago was from James chapter 1, we covered verses 1 through 12, and that passage is the passage about trials that God brings into our lives, into the lives of each believer, and the purpose of them and how God wants us to walk through these trials as part of our growth and our development as Christians, or to put it in spiritual terms, our sanctification, the process of us becoming holy. God uses trials to sanctify each and every Christian 
or better said, God uses trials to bring about holiness in our lives, in the lives of each believer. Now, the teaser that I laid out was that I believe within a certain context that the rich suffer under greater trials than do the poor. And if any of you, um, I'm a big Charlie Rose fan, and, and my son and I like to listen to him. Um, he comes on at 10 o'clock on PBS on Channel 7, and he's just a, a fabulous interviewer, real low-key and everything. Well, he was interviewing Warren Buffett here uh, a few days ago, and primarily to talk about taxes. He's been kind of in the news with some views on taxes and, and the economy, and they got into some personal issues. And talking about Warren Buffett, and let, let me preface it, if you don't know, Warren Buffett is, at one point, was the richest man in the world, and I think he's moved down a few notches, so he's really suffering for that, but um, he's probably still in the top five. But in any case, they got into his personal life, and one of the things that he said was, you know, I've been rich, and I've been poor. Let me tell you, it's a whole lot more fun being rich. So with that said, you know, he's kind of taken a little bit of the wind out of my, uh, my premise, but I still hold to it, and hopefully when we're finished, you will at least see my point, and hopefully you'll, you'll agree with me. But let me, let's, let's read the, the first 12 verses of James chapter 1, and then we'll get into this to get, give us the context of our, our passage, and Linda will put it up on the screen. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, this passage is clearly about trials. And sandwiched in, in the middle of this, or towards the end, is, are verses 11, or 9 through 11 that talks about the poor and the rich, and the trials that they face. Now, James uses a literary device called a paradox in verse 9 and 10 to make his point. Now, I'm not going to ask you to, to tell us what a paradox is, but how many of you know what a paradox is? Yeah, there's one man who should know what it is. <laughs> He's a, I got to be careful, he's a literary professor at UAA, so that's, that's here this morning. But but uh, um, a paradox, uh, Webster defines it as a, um, it's a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense, and yet perhaps it's true. Kind of a weird definition for a weird term, 
a word, word process. Let me say it again. It's a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense, and yet it perhaps is, is true. So I want to illustrate this, and I need the help of, of someone to come up here, preferably a, a young person. Do I got any brave souls that would want to come up here? Anybody? Anybody want to come up here? Well, almost, Randy. <laughs> any, any brave souls? Um, okay, we got one in the back. Okay, Jessica. The, the poor lady, the poor little girl I used at the first service, I didn't know the mic was supposed to be on, so it's on. So, Jessica, did you get an understanding what a paradox is? It's, a, it's up on the screen. It's, it's yeah, put it, put it in real simple terms, which most of us need. You know, if I, it, it, a paradox is something that when you first, first, first hear it, it sounds crazy. It doesn't make sense. It goes against everything you think is, should be common sense. But when you pause and you think about it for a moment, you say, yeah, maybe there's some truth to it. So, um, Jessica, what did, you, what did you do yesterday? I'm going to try to illustrate this. Saturday, uh-huh. the house. Okay. Did you go out and about any yesterday? Um, I did with the older brother. Okay. Did you send your kids out to play yesterday? We went to the park. Yeah. How was it there? Was it? Was it what's the, what was the weather like? It was nice. Mm-hmm. It was nice. It was cool. Okay. It was, was it raining? No. Oh. Oh, okay. So what was the sky like? It was cloudy. Cloudy? Yeah. So what would you say the color of the sky was? Gray. Gray? That's right. Mm-hmm. But what would you think if I said the sky was blue yesterday, and I was probably very near where you were? The sky was blue. You said it was gray. All right. You saw gray. Everyone else uh, was in town yesterday saw gray. But let's change the context of our existence. Say, uh, say we hopped in a helicopter. Say a helicopter landed at the park, and we hopped in it, and we went up a few thousand feet. What color do you think the sky would be? Blue. Blue. Right. That's the point I want to make. It depends on the context you're in. Laying, sitting down here on the ground, it's gray. Go up a few thousand feet, it's blue. Okay, Jessica, because you've been such a good help to me, I'm going to to give you something, put it in your pocket and take it away, and then I'm going to talk about it. So what do you got here? Okay, so very good. So let's give her an applause. We're going to, Jessica doesn't know this, but we're going to continue with our illustration. You know, in the Bible it says, to give is to receive. My goodness, I just gave her a dollar and I haven't received a thing back. You know, what's wrong? Is the Bible wrong? The Bible clearly says, and we, we talk about it almost before every offering, give and you'll receive. It depends on the context you're in. You know, Jessica is a, a friend of ours here, and, and she came up here and I gave her a dollar. But if you're to put it in a spiritual context where you use, that, use your giving as an act of worship, where you're, you're giving back with the acknowledgement that everything I have belongs to God and God wants 10% of it back, God has promised that he is going to bless you abundantly if you take on that attitude. So depending on the context you are drives, you know, how true a paradox is or not. Just as we had used earlier, you know, you look up in the sky, it's cloudy, but if you go into a different context up a few thousand feet, hey, it's blue sky out there. So 
So there's other um, paradoxes that, that the Bible talks about. God uses them quite extensively throughout Scripture. It's the one I just mentioned. Giving is receiving. Um, the weak are strong. The empty are full. The slave is free. The cursed are blessed. And death brings life. You look at it from a common sense standpoint. What do you mean death brings life? But you look at it from a spiritual standpoint, from a biblical understanding and a biblical basis, you begin to realize, oh, yeah, maybe there's some, some truth to that. These are all statements which first strike the ear as contradictory, but become increasingly true as we meditate on them. A paradox is a powerful vehicle for truth because it makes people think. Whole sermons can be preached on, books have been written on the paradoxes I just mentioned and many others on what God is trying to tell us through paradoxes. So looking at the two paradoxes that we'll find in verses 9 through 11, let's see what God is trying to tell us through them. Okay, the, the, the first paradox in verse 9, let's read it. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. Taking a more uh, liberal translation from the Greek, this verse says, the lowly brother ought to boast in its height. So let's first of all establish who are, who are the low. If we study the whole book of James, we find out that the, that, that the low, from the context of the book of James, that the low are, are poverty-stricken Jewish Christians who have been abandoned by their Jewish relatives and friends and family because of now their, their faith in Christ. They're poor because they have been basically kicked out of their homeland and dispersed around the Mediterranean. So these, these low people are, have been abandoned. They've been kicked out. They're in poverty because they've been kicked out with, with no, none of their wealth or, or livelihood. And because they were economically low or poor, they were low in the eyes of the world, and most importantly, felt they were low in their own eyes. Their poverty produced a lowliness of mind. This is the trial that Christians who are poor must overcome in order to be effective in the kingdom of God. We live in a society that equates prosperity with happiness and with God's blessings and we equate humble circumstances with misery and God's displeasure. That's what society thinks. There's no basis at all for this in Scripture. Psychologists say that, that, you, will, they say that you will be or you will become what your mind thinks that you are. If you think or if you're listening to the voices that say that you are low in standing, that you're a failure, you have nothing to offer, that over a period of time is what you will become. For the Christian, this type of thinking or this listening to these kind of voices is straight from the pit of hell. This is what James is trying to say to us, to these Jewish Christian brothers here in the book of James. And he's trying to say this to us through a paradox. The poor ought to take pride in his high position. So, so what, are the high, what is this high position? We have two examples I can give you. First one is the beginning of verse 9 itself. It says the brother. He is part of God's family, 
He is one of God's children. He is a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Everything that is created, God's Word says, everything that is created belongs to God, and the heir of God is Jesus Christ. And this verse, plus many others, say that we are co-heirs with Jesus. So we are an heir of everything that God has. Another example, 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. This is the description of every single believer. The problem is many of us don't even know it. Many of us don't even will, aren't willing to step out and begin to, to take on these, these, these positions and act accordingly. Another example of this is say, you know, the hardest job about preaching is this stupid thing. So, <laughs> Another exo- example of this is say a person is barely able to put food on the table, pay the monthly bills. In fact, probably they're sliding behind month after month. He's feeling pretty low, worthless, with not having much to offer. Okay, this person, say I come up to them with some good news. Say, hey, I just found out that there's there's this millionaire. He's got three months to live, and he's aggressively trying to find an heir to his entire state. And he mentioned that he thinks you're his heir. I come and tell him that. It gets confirmed. He automatically becomes an heir of this millionaire. He's going to start prancing around a little bit differently now, isn't he? just from finding out that piece of information. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are that person. In fact, the money owned by that millionaire already belongs to God, and you are one of God's heirs. What I've said so far in describing our spiritual position in Christ, it's not an actual physical experience yet. But God's word is clear that a mighty physical reversal is coming where the low will be made high and the high will be made low. At a, there was a, a, a banquet and, and, you know, they have the head table and there's the, you know, at the head table is the speaker and some other dignitaries and there's the, the pastor who, who gave the invocation and there's the, the general who's the commander at the local military base and so... They're eating their lunch, and the, and the general is sitting next to the pastor, and he, uh, he, he asks them to make conversation with him. He says, uh, well, pastor, tell me something about heaven that I might not know already. And the pastor said to him, well, if you make it to heaven, you're not going to be a general when you get there. So that is part of the grand reversal that's coming that we all will be facing. James is so convinced of this that he encourages his low brothers to take pride in it, literally to boast in their height. This is, this is to be a joyous boasting. Paul uses the same words in Romans 5.2. In Romans 5.2, he says, rejoicing in the hope of glory. And later on in verses, uh, chapter 5, verse 11, Paul says to refer to jo- rejoicing and reconciliation with God. Here's these great theological terms, and Paul is telling that we need to rejoice in knowing about this this understanding. And the same thing, James is telling these 
these poor Jewish Christians that have been dispersed all over the Mediterranean. Rejoice in the position that God has put you in. So now if we can, if we can change our perspective from where we are at only looking at life, you know, and I'm, I'm included, you know, I wake up this morning, and, you know, I figure out, okay, I want to get something to eat, I got to get my shower, I got to get dressed, you know, I figure out my time frame, and, 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 you know, during the weekday, you know, we have our, our regiment, you know, we're, we're so focused on the day-to-day existence, you know, and, and getting the bills paid and, 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 and all this. If we can change our perspective from where we are only looking at life at, a, from, at the moment to looking at things with an eternal perspective, there is another reason for, for these Jewish Christians to exalt in the condition that they are in. So we, I, I want us to try to start looking at our existence with an eternal perspective to it. The lowliness of spirit gives the poor a significant advantage with God. But you can only grasp this, you can only understand this if you can look at life from an eternal perspective. If you're only looking at it at the moment, then yeah, Warren Buffett is totally true. And and hey, I don't want to pick on Warren Buffett. I don't know anything about him. He could be a very godly man as far as I'm concerned. But we need to look at life from a, you know, from, a, from a perspective of eternity. So again, the loneliness of spirit gives the poor a significant advantage with God when we do so. How so? Jesus' first public ministry, the words that he gave, are from the book of Isaiah, and it's found in Luke 4.18. And this is what Jesus said, his first public words of ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because... He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. goes on in Luke 6.20. What the first beatitude is, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Christians who are poor, this gives them a natural openness to God to meet their needs, to provide for the next meal, a shelter over their heads. They are pursuing God. They are dependent on God in ways that the rich must work at to accomplish. For the poor, it just comes naturally because we are always constantly pursuing God to meet our needs, to be there for us. But for the rich, it's another story. Now, I'm sure many of us can attest here today the fact that during times of need, during times of trials, that is when we are closest to God. Contrasting the rich when a need arises, for the most part, all they need to do is find out, well, how much will it cost, pull out the checkbook, and bam, it's solved. Now, I want to make an editorial comment before I go on to the next, um, next person. I have no one in mind in this message other than sharing what I feel God has laid on my heart. There are poor here today who have overcome their trials of being poor and are great testimonies for for the faithfulness of God as they trust in him. As well, we have a number of wealthy folks in our body that as far as I'm concerned, or as far as I know, have overcome their trials of being wealthy, which we'll get into here just a few moments, and give generously to the work here and to many other Christian ministries. One thing I really like about Alaskans is 
You could be sitting next to a guy in T-shirts and a Costco shirt and tennis shoes, and he could have a million bucks sitting in his checking account, or he could have his last buck in his, in his back pocket. So we are a very unpretentious people for the most part that I really like. So no one in mind, no agenda other than sharing God's word with us. So let's move on, on to verse, with verses 10 and 11. Okay, our common sense tends to cause us to think that the rich have privilege. 99% of the world would agree totally with Warren Buffett. But Jesus taught that they are the underprivileged. Jesus taught that the wealthy are the underprivileged. And the context that we got to take it at is in a spiritual context. In Mark 10 is the story of the, of the young rich ruler who, who, who came to Jesus asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. Here is a man who was putting a tremendous amount of effort into living a very self-righteous life. And, 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 and wealth for eternal life. His self-righteousness and his wealth for eternal life. Jesus' message to this guy who wanted to trust in this stuff for salvation was to go and sell all you have. Well, he couldn't. And the conclusion for all of this, and specifically for the wealthy, is if you are going to trust in anything other than Jesus for your salvation, then Jesus' concluding comment from Mark 10 applies to each one of us, and specifically to the wealthy. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Riches steal from the non-Christian the primary requirement for entering the kingdom of God. Let me repeat that. Riches steal from the non-Christian the primary um, requirement for entering the, the kingdom of God, and that is helpless dependence on Jesus. It is difficult. Now, hear me out. It's difficult, but it's not impossible for the rich to present themselves as naked, humble beggars before God, declaring that I need a Savior. This is the trial that the wealthy must overcome for spiritual salvation. Now, let's transition here a little bit. What about rich Christians? And, you know, so much of this stuff is all, you know, in, in perspective. You know, what someone may be rich in, in um, Nigeria and Africa, maybe a pauper here, someone who's rich here moves to um, Park Avenue in New York City is, I mean, you're just a commoner. But let's, let's transition here. What about rich Christians? Does, does their wealth present a problem for them? It certainly does. Material wealth lures the possessor to focus one's attention on things. Jesus warned in, in Matthew 13, 22, against the deceitfulness of wealth. Down towards the end of that passage, the deceitfulness of wealth. Jesus warned about that. Have any of you ever known a deceitful person? They're not very nice people. They'll lie to you to get their way. They'll do whatever it takes to get their way. They'll, um, they live for themselves. They don't care anything about you. Jesus said wealth is just like that. Wealth is deceitful. 
And if you're not hearing anything else, if you're not hearing the, what the Word of God has to say to you, and that's all you're hearing is the deceitfulness from your wealth, it makes life very difficult for you from a spiritual uh, component. goes on, Revelation 3.17. You say that I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.17, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It's not impossible to have wealth and to be, and to be righteous before God. Many in this body are doing just that. As far as I can tell, everyone that I know is doing just that. But these scriptures and others provide significant warnings that you are facing significant trials to accomplish this and that you must be ever vigilant to have a godly perspective regarding your wealth. It is a trial and a very difficult trial at best. And this is why I believe that if you look at life from an eternal perspective, the rich have it far greater than the poor do in, in, in the trials in regards to this, of becoming a Christian and living the Christian life. The passage mentioned earlier, God seems to be giving every break to the poor. I mean, Jesus' first message to the, was to the poor. Jesus' first beatitude was to the poor. I mean, he seems to be cutting them a break. Scripture is very clear that the wealthy are welcome as well into the kingdom of God. But Scripture is also clear, Jesus is also clear, that if you want to come to me thinking that any amount of your money, one dime or however great amount you want, is not going to mean a hill of beans to me. That the only thing that's going to count is the blood of Jesus Christ that's covering your sin. Realizing this, what must the wealthy do to have the proper perspective on their wealth? Let's look on in verse 10. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low possession, position. John Calvin said this when commenting on this verse. He tells the wealthy to glory in their lowliness, their smallness, to restrain those lofty, lofty motives that swell out of prosperity. In other words, he is to work at this lowliness, focus on it, and make it his, make it his boast. Just as the poor have voices that drawing them away from God, telling them how low they are and all the negative things associated with that. The wealthy have voices as well that remind them of how significant they are. Look at all that you have accomplished. Look at all the friends who want to bask in your presence. God must be pleased with you. Just look at all the money you have. These voices, these reminders are straight from the pit of hell. You must come against these voices and constantly remind yourself that all I need, all that, I, that, all that can impress the Lord is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Going on in this passage, James provides an illustration specifically to help the wealthy, but it applies to all of us who, who are relying on trusting on something else for our salvation. 
And this illustration shows out the finality of the course of life uh, for a person who is following, who is trusting in anything but Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's an illustration of a flower budding from an arid climate in the, of a desert. It reads as such, Because he will pass away like a wildflower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. My hope and my prayer is that this does not describe any of us here. A man who had a significant impact on my life would often say, we as men are constantly focusing on the things that we have no hope in keeping. He would say, we as men, and I'm sure women too, but I'm speaking to men, we as men have no hope of keeping the things, I'm sorry, um, that we have no hope of keeping the things that we have no hope of keeping, and we are ignoring the very things that we can't afford to lose. You know, please do not have that be the description of your life. Ash, why don't you come up? There are some here this morning whose focus has been on their poverty and not in the glory of their position that they have in Christ. There are others because of hard work, good fortune, or maybe even simple genetics have been blessed with much and are only trusting in this. The creator God who made all that you glory in and according to his word claims to own it all is not impressed at all with what you own. We all need to come to the foot of the cross. It's a place where we all stand equal with each other and we all have the same very same need. What it is that we need, we need a savior and the ravages of sin that have impacted each one of us. If you are here and have not trusted in Jesus, I am convinced that the, the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart as you hit, sit here this morning. Will you trust in Jesus? Will you pray a simple prayer? Lord, I need a Savior. Please come into my life. Cover my sins with your blood. I want to trust and believe in you. For the rest of us who are believers, I ran, in my studies, I ran across a, a wonderful short prayer. It goes like this. God, burn eternity into my eyes. Think about that. How that would change so many of the things that we are pursuing, how that would impact so many of the decisions that we make in the way in which we spend our time, if eternity was burned into our eyes. Let me pray for us all. Father God, first of all, I, I, I pray for our pastor, Pastor Brad, that you would bring healing to his body. And Father, I pray for each one of us here today, and I, I pray um, more than anything for myself, that, um, that eternity would be burned in my eyes the number of things that I am constantly pursuing that have no bearing on eternity and, in fact, quite often take me so far away from the things that will last, the things that will matter when I stand before you. 
And Father, I pray for the person here this morning that may not know the Savior. Father, would they make the decision here as they sit to trust in you, to say the simple prayer of God, I need a Savior. Please come into my life. Father, I know that you would do that for them. In Christ's name I pray, amen.